Hey, hello. You're listening to Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer, and this is a podcast about streaming movies, series, and everything in between. On this episode of Film Spotting SVU, we'll be coming of age and coming into mysterious reality bending powers as we talk about Thelma, the supernatural drama from Joachim Trier, now available on Hulu. Matt, I just want you to know that if I ever accidentally erase you from existence in a fit of pique, I would totally bring you back eventually. Thanks. That, that means a lot. You know. Uh, also inspired by the film, which is about a college student's discovery of strange abilities uh, in conjunction with a adolescence or a kind of discovering of her sexuality, we'll devote the second part of this episode to some other supernatural coming-of-age stories, all of them available to rent or stream at home right now. But first, let's dive into Thelma and hope the surface doesn't disappear while we're underwater. Here's how we do things at Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. You, the listener, tell us, the podcasters, what you'd like us to review next. At the end of each episode, we give you three different films or sometimes TV shows and let you vote on which one you'd like to hear us talk about. Last time, your choices were the animated Oscar nominee Loving Vincent, which is now available on Hulu, Joachim Trier's supernatural drama Thelma, and the Netflix original Adam Sandler movie du jour, The Week Of. And it wasn't a contest. Thelma easily won. Thelma is the fourth feature from Trier, who's a Norwegian filmmaker, uh, whose last movie was his English language debut, Louder Than Bombs, uh, with Jesse Eisenberg and Isabel Huppert. Not my favorite, honestly, though, Matt, I think we were both fans of his first two films, Reprise and Oslo, August 31st. Yeah. Uh, both just like really kind of stylistically interesting, exuberant, like energetic, like wise, emotionally wise films um, mm-hmm. that I think you should check out. I don't think either of them is streaming right now. Naturally. But, but I, uh, you know, they pop up sometimes. Definitely worth a look. Uh, Trier returns to Norway for Thelma. Thelma, I guess. I don't know how they say her name in that. Uh, dips his toe into genre fare as well with this story uh, about the title character who's played by Ailey Harbo, who's a college student who comes from this very protective and very strictly religious family and whose sexual awakening when falling in love with a female classmate named Anya coincides with her discovery or rediscovery of something she first thinks is epilepsy, but that turns out to be something more supernatural in nature. So, Matt, uh, Thelma shares some DNA with Carrie, certainly, but it also, I would say, fits in, in general, with what's become a kind of mini-genre of film, one related to our general topic for this episode. But I think even more specifically, it made me think about what critic April Wolf, writing about the recent movie Wilding at The Village Voice, wrote uh, as, quote, this movie seeks entry into the canon of films about girls awakening to their own devastating powers upon their first menstruation cycle. Uh, Thelma is actually a little older than that, but this is still the kind of story in which a girl's sexual maturity is paired uh, with this kind of allegorical awakening of powerful and frightening female sexuality. Yes, yes. Uh, So I want to know, did Thelma do enough with what's a kind of familiar concept at this point for you that it distinguishes itself from the pack? 
Uh, not really. Mm. It, uh, it, it does feel, I felt like the first half of the movie felt very familiar. Yes. Felt it very, I mean, you mentioned the DNA, sharing DNA with care. I mean, they're, they they might be siblings. I mean, uh, in the first half, especially the beginning of this movie really reminded me very strongly of Carrie. And then the second half of the movie does kind of diverge a little bit. I mean, some of it, again, sharing some DNA, but going in some different directions. Um, but in some ways, I like that less. I found I was very frustrated by the by this film. In some ways, it, it is beautiful. It's well made. Um, you know, you mentioned that we like this director, some of his earlier films. I didn't really feel like this one was quite up to the, the his standards. Um, and I, I mostly just felt like, in terms of you know the the theme, the coming of age theme. Again, the first half felt familiar, and the second half I was like, what is? I mean, it felt like the metaphor was getting a little muddled and confused to the point where I was like, I mean, maybe this will get into this at, towards the end in a more of a spoilery discussion, but I almost felt like, what is this movie trying to say about female sexuality or coming of age or all those things where it goes from being the sort of, the sort of story where you feel like, well, it's about how, you know, being repressed or being, you know, traumatized, uh, picked upon, bullied, all these sorts of things can have sort of a, a domino effect or a, a boomerang effect. Whereas in this case, it's almost like, I don't know, what, I'm not even really sure what it's trying to say when we find out sort of the full scope of her backstory, which I, I found kind of odd and troubling, and but I don't know, I mean, sort of effective, but also maybe, again, just kind of muddled or just imprecise and i found it ultimately pretty frustrating actually yeah i liked it a little more than you but i don't feel like it really clicked together for me there's a lot of gorgeous it is like a beautifully made movie uh you know trier has a very great has a great eye uh there are times in which the way it uses is kind of like the clean almost brutalist designs of the campus and things uh in a way that reminded me of let the right one in totally uh, which is another you know scandinavian Scandinavian coming of age supernatural where it's got this kind of like beauty but this chilliness to all of these spaces as well yes and then the way she's shot like there are a lot of overhead shots that almost look like surveillance you know where it's kind of following her walking Mm -hmm. in the in the courtyards and like there's a lot of beauty there and visual interest and it's extended to some of these sequences in which she uses her powers and starts to kind of discover those powers especially the one involving the lake which i thought was a particularly Hard to shake image. Yes, maybe the most hard to shake image. Yes, in, in especially the film. for a father of young yes, children. Yes, I'm sure you loved yes. that one. Oh, delightful. Yeah, but I would agree. It never feels like it really settles on what it's a movie about. Right. And in some ways, it starts off feeling like yeah, there is a kind of allegory here. In particular, of course, like this is. It's not just a movie about someone like a sexual awakening, right. but also like a queer sexual awakening. Yes, and, and like, she comes from a religious family, right? And, and they're very, very protective and strict, protective. and kind of like, and I and and it seems like, yeah, in some ways, whatever the allegory is that seems to be there, it becomes much more literal in the second half. Yes, it it just becomes a movie about what it is, right? Yeah, right. Because partly it would be, I mean, again, not to be too spoilery, but it's like if it's about this awakening or this repression or something like that. It's like this, this character hasn't been like sort of oppressed or, I mean, like she has like these, she's done like horrible things in her past. Sure. Things that she has blocked out of her memory. Right. But if we take, I mean, and and I guess you could say that some of it is about, we're not entirely sure what's happening. There are scenes that are sort of, 
you know, delusions or, or visions or dreams. So we're not always entirely sure what we're seeing is, is actually happening, but it doesn't seem like we're not supposed to take that backstory at face value. It seems to me like that happened. Sure. Or at least we're not supposed to question it. I mean, it's not subjective. The movie starts right. off with a, a sequence from her childhood in right. which... I thought that was the best scene in the entire film, actually. Yeah. I thought it was a good scene. I think just, An yeah, incredible the unease opening. of it. Yeah. Yes. In yeah, which... Walking on, on this lake, which again, lake. the frozen lake, which again has a very important meaning in the film that we'll see later. Right. Several times, in fact, actually. Yes. Sometimes yeah, yeah. frozen, sometimes unfrozen. And... um and then she's they go out into the, the woods older, with an older other, man who turns out to be her, her father, father right. and she's like maybe six or seven. Right. It's this little girl, adorable. They're walking in the woods and, you know, they see a deer and he's, you know, and it seems like it's like uh, he's going to kill the deer and then he turns the gun on her and it's like, whoa, what is happening here? And he ultimately doesn't shoot her, but it's like this, what could make a man do this? And and it's like, that's like the cut to the credits, the opening credits. And it's like, yes. And I was like. I'm hooked. This is it. And I, you got me. This is a great opening. But I never really felt like the movie lived up to that scene. I thought sure. like nothing, nothing after that kind of lived up to sort of the, the sort of chilliness and the just the visual interest and the and the kind of monstrousness of this question yes. at heart, which is to be like your what would be so terrible in your child that you, that would, you would consider yes, them. right, yeah. And I think that I mean something I did like quite a bit. Like, as we start to, and like her powers are never like very clearly defined. But I did really, I did enjoy this as, in some ways, a kind of riff on my, as you know well, my favorite Twilight Zone episode of all time. Uh, it's a good life, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in which everyone in this small town has been like ripped from reality, or maybe the world outside of this small town has been destroyed. But there is this all powerful boy. Right. who has control over the nature of reality. Right. And everyone in the town has to kind of try and please Tip-toe him. Tiptoe around him yes. and please him. And, uh, right. It's based on parenthood and the life uh, every every <laughs> right. adult has with their two-year-old toddler when they're, they're trying they're like, to, oh, you want another cookie? Okay. Just don't have another meltdown. Please. Please. <laughs> yes. Anyway, um, continue. Yes. But like, I, I liked that her powers were not just this kind of like... You know, uh, and as we'll talk about later, there are movies that involve like a werewolf or fire starting or all of these different potential powers that can right. be there. That her powers are like much grander and scarier in scale. Like she may have the ability to kind of warp reality as far as we ever get to understand it. Yeah, I got to say, I, I actually disagree a little bit. And just that the, the powers to me at a certain point became really frustrating to me mm. because when they're very vague, they're interesting. Then when they sort of define them, I found I, like I couldn't understand. I didn't make any sense. Like the father says something about, well, if you desire something enough, you can make it happen. Yeah. So like theoretically, if you wanted to blink someone out of existence, maybe you could do that. Sure. But then some of the things she does in the movie, I'm like, how does that tie into her desire? Or did she really want? Did she really want X to happen? Did she really dire, desire this specific thing to happen? And and I, I couldn't always square it, and I found it sort of confusing and just sort of frustrating. Well, I think that it it is uh, an interesting exercise in that when you're dealing with a character who has lived with and internalized a lot of this repression, mm-hmm. she feels a lot of guilt over this like romance that she kind of is embarking on. She feels a lot of kind of conflict. Right. That the idea that you can, like, in a kind of whim, an impulse, that you can, like, 
yes, blink someone out of existence. It it kind of uh, has greater stakes in that your your personal kind of like conflict and angst, right, and like and self doubt gets externalized in these really terrifying ways. Sure. Uh, I mean, I think that I, one of the things that I wish it pushed this movie pushed a little more is that there is something that like there is like a potential like kind of greater allegory there with regard to the reality that you create for yourself versus the one that you you get from your parents. Yes. You know, and I think that the movie kind of brushes on this a little bit without ever quite making it click. Uh, but it's certainly there. I think like it, it the whole idea of a, particularly a. uh whatever the values you get from your parents, uh, uh, you kind of like emerge from the world, their creation and you, you know, accepting their reality right. until you, uh, you know, are open to creating your own. Right. No, I, yes, that is one of the more interesting things that are sort of in there, but then again, they don't it's fully explored. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I feel like that's kind of true of a lot of things about the movie. Like I even feel like the kind of that core romance, you know, it never really kind of takes off because, I don't know. It feels – it doesn't feel like that the the sort of Thelma's sort of love interest, Anya, she, I don't – it didn't feel like she had like much of a character. And, you know, and then when this, the sort of halfway point comes or maybe two-thirds point, whatever it is, where the story sort of shifts much more to this family drama and the backstory – I mean the backstory isn't necessarily bad, but it's like we spent all of this time building up this relationship and then that one character is kind of taken out of the story yeah. and we never really get to uh, – there is sort of a resolution by the end, but I didn't find it to be a particularly satisfying one because we haven't really seen that character for so long. Sure. But I think that you know, like the movie kind of makes this relationship very kind of sensual. It like really leans into it as being like a yeah. sexual awakening. But I think that it – the movie raises a really dark possibility towards the end. It does, yes. Regarding kind of like consent or even like the idea of whether this romance could, is possible. Right. And I don't think that you can raise that <laughs> and then not engage with it a yes. little bit more. <laughs> yes. It's a quite a big matzo ball that they throw out there. But Just very casually. Yes. I know. I was very I found frustrated that very by frustrating that. too. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's talk a little, a few spoilers. Okay. Okay. If you uh, haven't seen this movie yet and you don't want us, we've already kind of brushed on the basic details, but right. you don't want us to talk about the second half particularly, uh, please go ahead and skip ahead a bit. Yeah. Um, the baby scene, I do think. Ugh. Like, I, yeah, I know you like the, the opening scene. The baby scene, I have to say, <laughs> you is love, so disturbing. You love that, was that like, baby scene. I did. I love that. You know, in mm. It's a Good Life. He banishes people to the cornfield. Right. Here and this the, really is like the, to the frozen lake. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a horrifying image. Right. Um, it's, it's, that's a very disturbing scene. Yeah. Um, horrible. Yeah. Didn't, didn't enjoy watching that. No. Very uncomfortable. But that is like, I mean, <laughs> as, this... <laughs> as there was a baby in my house screaming from the other room, it just made it that much weirder <laughs> and uncomfortable and horrible. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's in some ways, like if you, if this movie, which like brushes on horror, it verges on horror sometimes but it's never i would say it, like more than a little on the edges of this horror. is your classic elevated horror yeah i mean it's a drama i think yes. it's a drama with supernatural touches but yeah. that is the moment of true horror mm -hmm. and i feel like there is that for me was a great of great interest because the idea of a child who has his power and isn't even necessarily malicious, but doesn't understand right, right consequences or like that. That's truly frightening, right? 
Well, I mean, but the, and that is something that is very true to children, having them running around my house. Like I, they, you know, my older daughter is not malicious, but sometimes she'll do things now, I, I, not, not on that scale, but she'll <laughs> do something that she shouldn't. Sure. And as soon as you ask her, she knows she shouldn't. And she didn't really mean it to do to be evil or mean or right. wrong. But, you know, they you just live can't. in the moment. Right. And they you're, can't help yeah. themselves. Yeah. And so sometimes they do things like that. And I think that that is, you know, that that is part of what makes that scene so disturbing is that it's it is sort of plausible in a horrifying way with a, you know, with a child with these powers. You could see it happening for sure. And that's yeah. part of what makes it so disturbing. And it does also I think the other thing that it touches upon, which is a theme throughout the film, is that is these family relationships where you are tied to these people throughout your life. And you may love them, but you also may at times want to just kill them, you know? Sure. And so – and while we would not act on that ever, you know, that it sort of raises that the fact that it sort of forces us to wrestle with those emotions that we feel and, you know, potentially repress. And then the movie is sort of kind of dealing with that stuff, kind of. Yeah. I think if it was a better movie, it would deal with it more directly and more effectively. Yeah, I think in particular the way it uses religion, even though like the father says at a certain point, he's almost using it in a prescriptive way because she, her powers stopped manifesting. Right, it helped, it actually helped her. Yeah. Right, but I do feel like there is, in some ways there's a little bit of a cheap shot to how it uses religion. Like it's a pretty easy thing to put up against like college and sexual awakening and partying and drinking and then like religion on the yeah. side you know like although there is that nice scene where she's i guess in church or a, a youth group or whatever it is and everyone is singing and and they, they've got the holy spirit in them and she is just sort of drained of that she's lost it right. because of what's going on with her love life and i thought that was again just a very succinct little nice little image effective scene um one of the better moments in the film yeah i also like the scene where like the the kind of know-it-all atheist guy you know is like ragging her a little about having grown up in a religious household mm -hmm. and she asks him if he can explain how his cell phone works <laughs> and i was like that scene is great actually yeah. like you know the moments what's what's interesting and frustrating about the ways in which the college scenes unfold is that it doesn't actually stop that often to actually to drop you into the moment. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of scenes in which, you know, you're just watching from the outside or like looking at kind of like montage dreamlike uh, sequences. Yeah. And you don't really get a ton of ones where you're like, oh, she's a college student. Yeah. And this is the kind of fight you have <laughs> at mm -hmm. a bar with, uh, with someone. I don't know. I don't know this for a fact at all. It's just the vibe that I got was that they sort of started from a place of kind of very Carrie-ish, um, and then we're like, well, how do we subvert this? How do we do what people are not expecting? How do we zig when they expect us to sure. zag? Because a lot of the choices in the second half kind of undercut what you are expecting. Like, well, actually, religion is not really. It's kind of a red herring. They're right. not that religious. It's just that, like you said, she had all these seizures and fits and did these horrible things, and then they started going to church, and it seemingly got better. You know that sort of thing. And I ultimately felt like that. You know, that these twists or or that, again, like, it's not that her father is a horrible person. She did something horrible. Sure. It's not like she was abused, at least that we've seen. She did horrible things. She didn't mean to do them. Right. But, like, she has this monstrous ability. Um, and so it's not it's not so much like the parents don't understand their daughter or they mistreat her. Yeah. It's like she's done these bad things. So, again, that sort of undercuts or messes with that central metaphor or all those ideas 
and it sort of surprises you. It's not what you expect, but it seemed to come at the cost of the kind of overall cohesiveness of the ideas in the movie to me. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And, I, you know, I think that if you're going to have a movie that tackles the very difficult the very difficult topic of like how do you contend with your child having done something horrible Mm -hmm. particularly when they didn't mean to or they didn't know what they were doing like Mm -hmm. how do you still love your child but also like especially in the case of her mother like clearly resent her deeply Mm -hmm. uh, in ways that she probably didn't want to but what did you think of the very end the where, which part of the where Anya comes back is back. She's like maybe wished her back. Right. Like I don't. I felt a little dark to me. I mean, oh, I, I thought it was supposed to be very dark. Right. Yeah. I mean, beyond that, she's she's like in control of her powers now. The like summoning back of this. Right. Well, again, but it sort of it speaks to what that what the father says in that one scene we talked about, where where he kind of suggests that the that Anya had no agency in any of this, and she was just sort of being sort of puppet puppeteer right. into feeling these feelings yeah, right we don't know and and the other option which we've also seen because she has these hallucinations is that maybe she's not there at all and this is just her she's sort of she's had some sort of mental breakdown and she's sort of retreated into this fantasy world that she can kind of conjure for herself so we really don't know whatever it is that's happened there uh, the father is a is like a roasted marshmallow right, at the bottom fire. of the lake. The and, mother can walk again, right? But, and but not in a. I mean, it's kind of a consolation prize. Sure, at exactly. That point. It's almost like a spite thing. Yes. yes, and and so and and yeah, whatever is happening with Anya in that scene, it doesn't seem like it's a happy reunion. It's more like either yeah. she's being manipulated or she's not even there at all. So no, I, I took that yeah. to be a very disturbing, very dark ending. Right, which is like to what you're saying about how this kind of twists your expectations. It's right. like this thing that lo- is like. Like, in its basic shape, this kind of like, yes, she's like walking away from this yeah. family go, that held her back. Except, yeah, you're like, I don't know, you might be a total <laughs> monster with monster. godlike powers. Yep. All right. Well, that is Thelma, and it is available on Hulu. We're both mixed, but at least we would say it is a beautiful looking movie. Yep. All right. So let's talk about some more movies that are supernatural coming of age films. It is sort of. A kind of a, a pretty well-defined subgenre at this point. There are a lot of these movies. There are a lot of them. I mean, uh, maybe it is. I mean, I, I think it's it's almost like a chocolate and peanut butter thing. People love horror. Mm-hmm. You know, horror is a staple, sure. and coming of age movies are a staple. Something that everyone can relate to. We all, at a certain, you know, if we're old enough, we can relate to coming of age, and if we're younger, we can sort of look at it and think of oh, like either be excited about the prospect or be terrified of it. In this case of the horror movie, probably terrified. Sure. And you kind of combine two things that people like and coming of age, growing up, experiencing things that can be a very terrifying experience. So they kind of go together very nicely. Right. Makes There's sense. This fairy tale kind of touch to them. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think uh, like Neil Jordan, like I feel like half of Neil Jordan's movies kind of fall into this category mm-hmm. <laughs> when I was looking through. But I was also thinking, you know, to April Wolf's point about Wilding being part of this genre. I was like, yeah, the other day I'd seen this movie, uh, When Animals Dream. Uh, and I cannot even remember where it was from, but like it was kind of a riff on a bit of like a werewolfy or like uh you know like fairy tale kind of this this girl in the small town coming of age and discovering this dark thing about herself and her mother who I think was also in a wheelchair and you know you're just like wow so many of these elements kind of repeat and repeat and echo each other, um but yeah you know I I like it as a 
Well, I mean, they're 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 primal. I mean, it's getting it's you know it's Adam and Eve. It, sure. This is like you know it, it this is like the oldest trick in the book, really. Um, yeah, I like them too, though. I mean, they they speak to something that again they're very relatable. Um, well, some of my favorite movies. I mean, we're not going to talk about Nightmare on Elm Street. It's kind of my favorite horror movie of all time. I would say that qualifies in this. Uh, Genre, sure, or like Pan's Labyrinth, another or, great one. Uh, Paper House, which I almost talked about but uh, didn't go with, but like the 1988 film Paper House is mm. like this great, like weird, disturbing fever dream of a movie, or just House, House, Japanese movie, absolutely, another great one. Um, Return to Oz. Oh man, yeah, I thought about that one. I, I I haven't seen that in so long. If I had had time, I was really tempted to watch it. I didn't have time. It's so good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is it disturbing? Uh, it's totally disturbing. Should I have let uh, Riley watch it with me? Yes, please. Yeah, she would scar she her would for it. so long. <laughs> it has so many disturbing things in I have it. A, I have a friend who's shown their daughter who's who's Riley's age, Wizard of Oz. They love Wizard of Oz. Sure. I should, I should ask if he's shown shown his <sighs> like, daughter. A, a lot of people are afraid of, I forget the name of them, the roller people with the... Uh, but like it's Mombi with her collection of heads that she trades off, like so scary. I mean, just the sentence Mombi and her collection of heads. It's not exactly <laughs> the most heartwarming combination of words I've heard in my life. No, no. Um, I would say also a fair amount of Miyazaki movies would fall. Into I mean, this. yeah, it's definitely one of his favorite kind genres, of, like in kind a lighter of, yeah. way. Yes. And I also did want to give a shout out to Ginger Snaps, which is <laughs> of course great, and I think forever underappreciated installment in this. In this category. But yeah, there's a a lot. There's a lot. I feel like there's a a fair amount of horror films cross over with this, um, including one of yours. In fact, two of yours. All of mine. All of yours. Yes. You want me to go first? Please. All right. Well, my first pick is one of my favorite movies of the last couple of years. So again, speaking to the fact that we like these kind of movies a lot. It is It Follows from 2014. This is a, for sure, it is both a supernatural film and a coming of age story. It's about a group of characters that are essentially suffering from a ghost STD. There is this creature that follows people around after they have sex. And the only way to get rid of it is to pass it on to another person through having sex with them. Which means the only way, potentially, to save your life is to essentially doom another person. Now, you could theoretically pass it on by accident. But in the movie, what we see more of is people passing it on on purpose as an attempt to save themselves by uh, by passing it on to other people. And this is a very scary movie. This, the idea of a creature that just won't stop. I mean, that's I mean, that is a, a classic. You know, it's a zombie. It's it's like every monster kind of distilled to its essence that the, this creature that can't be reasoned with or, or rationalized and it just won't stop until it until it gets you. But this is also a really effective metaphor for the ideas about coming of age, much more effective as a metaphor than than Thelma is, I would say. And and also about how, you know, maturing, growing up, getting to experience things, even things you want to experience like sex for the first time, that invariably can also open you up to pain, trauma, people disappointing you. And and also, I think in some ways that vulnerability can be very dangerous um, because it can come back to bite you on the on the behind, or in this case, it can chase you across the upper Midwest in the form of a, a well, the different forms, different forms, and a lot of weird psychosexual forms. Yeah, like there's weird, like naked old people, and people like this beat up woman, like, yes, uh, and then parents at the end, yes, the parents you don't see otherwise, yes, because the idea is this: this ghost, whatever it is, it's never made entirely clear how it 
how it formed, why it does this, how it operates, which in this case I think somehow makes it even scarier. It's a huge strength, yeah. Yes. Is that it, it, this, this creature, this monster, it, uh, does take different forms to fully terrify someone. Allison, have you ever thought who your, like, it, if it was following you, who, what form it would take? I don't know. I guess, what about you? It could be you. Oh, for sure. Oh, I would be following you? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like the scariest ones in the movie for me are the ones that like it, that seem like they come out of like a weird subcon like the what yeah like, like the, the beat up people the images of abuse and the kind yeah. of like like these like bedraggled or like nude uh, you know actually the one in the movie that's the most frightening for me is the woman in the hospital gown mm. in the school yeah it's just because it's so there's something about her face it never has like never looks malicious mm-hmm. it's just kind of usually blank right and it's that's more frightening i feel like mine would be william howard taft <laughs> just never trusted that guy yeah you know it very would be, sketchy it would be very scary to get killed by a william ghostly howard. <laughs> william howard, howard taft <laughs> i had the first bath to put in the white house i guess they don't talk but anyway one of the other things that i really like about this movie before i ramble on too long um and it's actually something I liked about the director's first movie. The director is David Robert Mitchell, and his first film was The Myth of the American Sleepover, is that the teenagers in this movie, they look and feel like teenagers. These are not Beverly Hills 90210 teenagers. Uh, Micah Monroe plays the main heroine. I think she was about 19 when they shot it. She you know, she looks like a teenager. And then Keir Gilchrist, who's one of the other kids, the main kids, I think he's actually older than her, um, but he looks like he's like 12 years old. Yep. Like he looks like the way I looked when I was a kid, which was always younger than I really was. And I appreciate that um, because that really puts these kids, these characters out of their emotional depth, out of their psychological depth. Because, you know, if like a movie is about coming of age, of learning these lessons, of of – you know, being disturbed by kind of becoming an adult and the characters already look like adults and they look like they've gotten their PhDs. Like there's no, that ruins it. They don't look like they have anything to learn or anything to lose. So these kids look the part and that's another great thing about it. So that is, it follows. Uh, It is available right now on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, um, and I'm guessing a lot of our audience probably already has, but if you haven't seen it, it is a really, really great horror film. One of my favorites from the last couple of years. All right. Well, for my first pick, uh, this is a film that I think is kind of like one of the kind of formative versions of the slightly surreal psychosexual fairy tale like this. Uh, and it has a, a lead who is younger than and looks very young than the It Follows cast. Uh, the movie is Valerie and Her Week of Wonders. Valerie, I guess. Uh, it's streaming on Filmstruck. And this is the 1970 uh, Czechoslovakian new wave film uh, directed by Yaromil Yiresh, Um And is this just kind of almost indescribably weird and kind of deliberately disjointed uh, look at this strange, I guess, week. They never, it's really hard to judge how time passes in the movie. Um, this, this title girl named Valerie, as she goes through this week involving, um, vampires and strange death-like figures and grandmothers who shift ages and, uh, young men who may or may not be her brother. Uh, the lead actress is played by Yaroslava uh, Shelarova. Nicely done. Uh, thank you. I think I messed it up, but that's fine. She plays Valerie. But she's also, and I think in ways that in, one, in, in part speak to the kind of uh, 
Europeanness and 1970sness of this, but in part ways are also meant to like deliberately kind of discomfort you. Uh, she was in her early teens at this time, and she's playing a character who's 13 years old, and and yet this is a movie about kind of uh, explore like sexual awakening, and the way the movie gazes at her is like definitely at times very uncomfortable. Uh, sometimes by design and sometimes not by design. Um, but of course, in, in the tradition of this genre, this week of wonders corresponds with her getting her first period. Um, she lives in this kind of, it's set in the past in a world that looks a bit like a, sometimes like a bad hammer film and sometimes like a kind of very arty, arty one. It's, uh, in this kind of village in which, uh, this character comes in who is sometimes a man, a local authority figure called the constable, sometimes a man named Richard, who may or may not be Valerie's father, sometimes an immortalish monster named the polecat, who at a certain time transforms into an actual polecat. Uh, then there's an actress who plays her grandmother, who at a certain time then transforms into a younger version of herself, also by, by vampiric forces, and claims to be Valerie's cousin. Uh, the same actress later turns up playing her missing mother, and then there is Eaglet, the dashing young man, who is either Valerie's suitor or her brother or both, maybe. Uh, this is the, to, to kind of like try and parse either this as an allegory too far or to kind of parse this as a linear story is impossible. And I think, you know, this movie is under 80 minutes long. It's sometimes like very beautiful and grand and sometimes a little silly, but it it exists in its own world so completely. Um, this kind of like Angela Carter-esque uh, fairy tale mashup that always seems to be a kind of heightened expression of some form of uh, adolescent darkness, you know? Um, but I think one of the things that, that makes this, even when it, it is kind of very deliberately incoherent or dreamlike, uh, kind of grounds it is, is, uh, Shalarova's performance herself. She is this character who is sometimes the innocent, but she's also sometimes really wise. And she is possessed of this pair of earrings that she, uh, is putting on in the very beginning. And every time something particularly bad seems about to happen, uh, say an assault or getting burned at the stake, two things that uh, she's in danger of happening. These bad. earrings kind of seem to give her the power to extricate herself from this experience, which feels like a way in which it allow it's allowing the movie to dip into the idea of, in the same way it follows this idea of adulthood as this kind of darker, frightening place uh, and adult sexuality as this kind of, potentially fraught landscape and then pull back and allow her to kind of retreat into childhood or innocence again. Uh, it was a movie I hadn't seen before we were doing this podcast and I watched it for it and uh, I, I was happy I did. It's I not my favorite film in that I don't feel like it. I, I feel like the parts are more interesting than the whole, but it's got some incredible imagery in it. And if you like films like this or like The Company of Wolves, which it feels like a real precursor for, uh, this is definitely one to watch. It's uh, Valerie and her Week of Wonders on Filmstruck. It does sound good. Okay, my second pick. It's one of uh, last year's surprise hits, which I took a while to get around to seeing. And I don't think we ever talked about it on the podcast, or at least I don't think I did. So let's do that now. And uh, it is It, 
directed by Andy Muschietti, which uh, is currently available for rent. And yes, I have It Follows and It as my two picks. I have a theme on a theme here. And uh, this is the first part of what's going to be a two-part film series adapting Stephen King's epic supernatural coming-of-age novel about a group of friends from a small town in Maine. I'm covering their hometown's buried secrets and also doing battle with an evil entity of, I don't know, awfulness and badness (laughs) that takes the form of a very disturbing clown named Pennywise – Played by Bill Skarsgård, and um, I guess I am a bit of a, a, an aberration among among our generation, and maybe some subsequent generations, Allison. In that, I have never read it. Mm. I never attempted to read it. I never it saw. Is long. It is very long. I never saw the old miniseries. Uh, I have. I had basically no knowledge of the material beyond you know kids. There was a clown, kids and scary clown. Sure. That was in Maine. I mean, and I knew that much because sure, it's sure. Stephen King. Although I'm my Stephen King knowledge in general is is pretty limited. For whatever reason, that was not one of the sort of touchstones of my coming of age uh, <laughs> uh, teen years. I, I just never got into him very much. And that's probably why it took me so long to get around to see this, is that I didn't have an attachment to the material the way a lot of people do. But when I did it, it really resonated with me. And I appreciated, again, like it follows, that these kids look like younger teenagers. They look like kids. I think that was really important in in both of my picks. Um, In this case, you have Jaden Lieberher from my beloved The Book of Henry. (laughs) So even though I watched... beloved The Book of Henry. Yes. That's the first time I've heard you say that. What? That can't be right. So even though I watched this movie by myself, when he appeared on screen, I turned to no one and whispered, that's Henry. He wrote the book of Henry from the movie, the book of Henry. Nice. Have you seen the book of Henry yet? I still haven't. What? I know. I know. I know. I feel like I'm missing out. But at the same time, at this point, I feel like I need to choose my right time. It's going to be a listener's choice option very soon then. (laughs) It has to. It probably will. It, no, it, no, I, no, I will make sure it is. Uh, anyway, he plays Bill and uh, Sophia Lillis, who I thought was really good as uh, Beverly in the film. Beverly is the, the one female member of this group of kids. They refer to themselves as the losers. Uh, they're the kids fighting uh, Pennywise in the movie. And another thing I really liked about this movie is that so many – Coming of age movies in general, not just um, not just the the horror variety, just any kind of coming of age movie, is that they tend to have this kind of nostalgic glow about wherever and whenever they're set. In the case of it, the movie is set in 1988. I'm assuming that the the novel was set in the 50s, yeah, uh, around then anyway, because you know it's like it, it's two two eras. Um, but it is completely about tearing down this notion of this idyllic past and revealing how uh, this era in your life, this place that you remember so fondly, maybe it was actually full of monsters and awfulness and it was hiding these dark and terrible secrets. And to me, that rings a lot truer about, you know, the past in general and about growing up uh, specifically. Maybe it's 2018, the, the atmosphere of now that gives me that feeling. But just this, I feel like that is the one of the, even though I love coming-of-age movies, we've talked about how much we enjoy them. I feel like that is one of the big problems in the ones that aren't scary is that they sort of embrace this time in life and they often are set in the past and they they treat everything with this rose-colored glow, which is total BS. 
I'm curious about what it says about your parenting anxiety that you've also chosen two movies that are about in which parents are largely absent and oblivious to all of the horrible things their children are going through. <laughs> I didn't think about that, but yeah, you got a point. What can I say? I'm a great dad. Um, you know, I, I also felt, and I'm not phobic about clowns at all. Generally think the whole scared of clowns thing is way overblown. Like they're clowns. Get over it. Who cares? <laughs> There's lots of scarier things than clowns. Uh, I thought uh, Pennywise in this movie was really terrifying. I thought Bill Skarsgård was great. I thought that his performance was really chilling. And that whole world that he exists in, this underground world with the tunnels and the floating things. And, you know, like, again, the uh, sort of like it follows, like the metaphorical stuff here works, but it's also just scary. Like both parts work here, which is what you're looking for. And... um I really – I mean, I, on the one hand, like, I'd never need to see that character again because I was really unsettled by him. But on the other hand, I actually am looking forward to seeing – because I enjoyed this one so much, I am curious about the fact that they're making, like, a part two with the adult characters. I know in the novel – it. I don't know if it goes back and forth or if it's all chronological, to be honest with you. I don't even know that. Uh, from what, it's been a long time since I've read the novel, but I feel like the novel jumps back and forth, maybe, and then this has been split. I can't remember. I honestly don't know. I would assume it goes back sure. and forth. That would right. be my guess. Write in and tell me I'm wrong, please. <laughs> I mean, but um, because people say it was so unadaptable for so long, and it would seem to me if it was chronological, it might be easier to adapt. You just do what they did. Um, but I thought the way that they adapted it where it was just the kids, I thought that was really smart and, and very effective. And yeah, I like this movie a lot. I totally understand why it was a was a big hit. Deserved to be. It was a good movie. It is it. It is available now for rent. Yeah, I didn't like it quite as much as you did, but you know what I did really I thought it did really well is to capture the weirdness of your personal childhood fears. In particular, mm. the kid who is afraid of the painting on the wall, his father's <laughs> office, the rabbi's <laughs> office, and it's just like a weird, creepy painting. And I'm like, absolutely. Yeah, As we- a kid, I would be terrified of something like that right. and not look at it the way he does. I was As a kid, I was terrified of Michael Jackson's thriller. And sure. not the not the song, not the whole music. I loved the whole thing until the end when he turned around with the yellow oh, eyes. Oh, yeah, totally frightening. For some reason, when that part would come on, I would leave the room. Yeah. I would watch the whole music video. I would dance. I'd enjoy the whole thing. As soon as I would make an excuse, I'd be like, oh, I have to use the restroom. I have to. I'm tired. <laughs> I'm going to go take a nap forever. I would just leave the room so I didn't have to see Michael Jackson's yellow eyes and Vincent Price laughing. Yep. It's frightening. That's weird. Yeah. No, I don't know. I mean, I think no, you that, get that. I totally get that. Well, that was when, my weird fear. When that you're, I could think but of. that's it. Like when you're a kid. My brother was afraid of the blueberry girl in Willy Wonka. Oh, uh, that's also a frightening idea. She turns enormous. They have to juice her. How was that going to be like? It would hurt. Yeah, but she's a big ball. It's kind of funny. Uh, it is funny. And the Oompa Loompas are singing. All right. Well, for my second pick, I went with something that is. Uh, right in the intersection of supernatural coming of age and dark comedy. Uh, it is Jennifer's Body, which is available on DirecTV and for rents. This is the 2009 flop. It was a flop at the time, uh, by, written by Diablo Cody, directed by Karen Kusama, uh, that has, I think, been gotten a little bit of a reexamined, I think, in like the, like a recent year or two. I keep seeing people talking about it. And I think that's in part because of you know, revisiting this, I was like, what's a really enjoyable uh, role for Megan Fox? She's just a real combination of like a uh, mean girl and hilarious demon monster. <laughs> and it's, she really goes for broke in it, in this uh, really admirable, I think, 
undermining of of her image uh that she she you know particularly had at the time as this like sex bomb uh she goes really gross um but i think that uh one of the things that really makes this movie work is that it is a movie about female friendship and also kind of like codependent unhealthy female friendship all told through this story about an indie band doing a human sacrifice in order to guarantee themselves fame uh, and instead summoning a demon into the body of uh, Jennifer Check, a popular cheerleader played by Megan Fox. Um, the whole movie is, it's a messy movie, I think. And I think that when you watch it, you can definitely see, you have to kind of like pull, tease out this main through line, which is about how uh, Needy, played by Amanda Seyfried, is this, the kind of like quiet, maybe tag along friend for this much more popular girl, uh, the kind of convenient friend who, you know, kind of does what she says. Um, but I think that all of those parts work really well. Even when uh, I think the movie flirts with a bit of Heather's territory that doesn't quite come together regarding like this tragedy in a small town, all of the progressions of this friendship uh, between this kind of like dominant character and this uh, kind of passive follower one who has to learn to take charge really just bring painfully true to me. I think really it speaks of ways in which uh, when you're a girl and growing up, uh, you know, a f- someone you can have been very close to can start to diverge from you in terms of popularity and social group and uh, the ways in which this can be this yawning divide that just kind of highlights if you are the less popular one, your standing and your kind of relative lack of power. But all of the parts in which uh, Jennifer and Needy have an increasingly tense relationship uh, exacerbated by the fact that Jennifer has demonic powers and eats people now uh, are kind of delightful. <laughs> you know, Jennifer is not a great friend, but then Needy is also kind of a, you know, someone who needs to go out on her own. And uh, I, I think that Cody's writing is really at its best when it's this exaggerated look at how, uh, they are, they both kind of have trapped each other. And in particular, Jennifer is using needy as this kind of social prop and way to make herself feel better by having someone who's just, you know, considered less pretty and less popular and, uh, who's very malleable. Uh, it's, you know, I, I think for all its imperfections, I do feel like it's very clever about some things, uh, in particular, the the band that uh the the satanic band headed up by Adam Brody has this pitch perfect 2009 style song with a soaring indie rock chorus that i think is like uh, you hear it multiple times throughout the movie and it is uh just about perfect and i think that when the movie really kind of finds those bits of like uh pop culture ephemera and weaves them in it's it's really wonderful uh so that is jennifer's body it's available on direct tv and for rent all right before we do behind the eight ball there is a uh there's a, a i would say a medium-sized film that's uh, out in theaters currently yeah that you'll have to seek it out maybe well, yes you probably haven't heard of it i'll spell the title for you it's avengers a-v-e-n-g-e-r-s colon 
Infinity War, I-N-F-I-N-I-T-Y-W-A-R. I'm glad you committed to that all the way. Yeah, why not? Um, we have not had a chance to talk about it yet. And as I was uh, looking to see if there were any other movies to talk about, which weirdly they're not. It's like everyone else was like getting the heck out of this movie's way in early May. Um, when I opened up my web browser, I, Twitter opened up, and I saw this tweet from our, our friend, Scott Tobias. Mm-hmm. I'll read it to you, and then this is a good way to start our review. <laughs> saw Infinity War last night, a relentless 150-minute denial-of-service attack on the senses. <laughs> if I saw this as part of a 31-hour Marvel marathon, it'd be like the end of a deprogramming session. I'd be cured of my movie addiction. <laughs> Allison, is Scott being fair or unfair to Avengers Infinity War? I will say I was so I was away last or the other week, which is when it was shown to press. Right, that was the week it opened. I was in England yeah, visiting family. Strategically, I took strategically a vacation. ankled the country. <laughs> yeah, I'm out of here <laughs> in this conversation till now. Yeah. So I went to see it the other uh, the other week uh, in the comfort of. After the main a 31 of, hour marathon. Yes, I did not do that. Marathon, okay, too and bad. I cannot believe that anyone does that marathon. It sounds so tiring sleeping in that theater and having it smell worse and worse. Uh, <laughs> I was glad to see it like outside of the whole the initial round of discussion. Uh, just because it freed me up to say, like, I don't think this is a very good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, it is easily, I think, my least favorite of the Marvel Cinematic Universe installments. Wow. Uh, have you seen all of them? I've seen all of them. So you like this less than Thor The Dark World and yes. Incredible Hulk? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think either of those movies is good. Right. I, for the most part. You're I entitled. Like, I just yeah, wanted to know no, where no, we no. stood. I think for the most part, I have liked a fair amount of the Marvel movies. Sure. I don't know that any of them have, very few of them have lingered with me in kind of significant ways, but some of them have. I've, mm-hmm. I've really liked some of them. Mm-hmm. Most of them are, I think, pretty good or okay or entertaining enough. Mm. And this, I think, in part because it's trying to do something that is like almost out of the realm, the usual realm of movies, uh, I just, it gave me so little, mm. you know? It reminded me, uh, there's a lot of discussion of like, is the MCU like more like television than movies. Sure. And I find that mostly an annoying discussion that doesn't do a lot. But I will say this Avengers Infinity War reminded me of when a popular TV show that is over, they make like a movie about it or a movie for it. That's kind of an accessory for the TV show. And it's mm-hmm. mostly for the fans. And it's kind of just like, remember this guy? Right. How about this guy? Here's the guy you really liked, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, is it kind of doing this weird form of fan service? So uh, it's Twin Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. So you're complimenting it, is what you're saying? Yeah, I'm not complimenting it. Oh. Yeah, I take it you liked it more than I did. Well, I liked it more than you did, sure. But I would not put this. Uh, as, you know, I, I I would I would say I would give it a very mild recommendation, more as a, you know, I I, I like certain things about it. Um, I thought the ending was a lot of, I don't know, fun is the right word, but I enjoyed the ending sort of perversely. The boldness of The it. boldness, yes. right. Even though we know that they're making more Avengers movies and they're making, um, you know, some of these other characters already have other uh, sequels in the works. So some of what happens is going to have to be undone somehow, and I'm trying not to spoil too much. I, I did like that. I thought that they went for it. We sort of were expecting certain things to happen. They didn't happen, and they and they surprised us, and they really went for it. And I appreciated that. But it did feel, you know... To me, like, I mean, it is barely like a movie. I mean, while the whole sort of, is this TV or is this a movie thing? I get, I agree. That's sort of pointless, exhausting discussion. 
it had so many characters in it and and sure i i i like these movies more than you do i as a, as a comic book fan it sort of it still tickles me a lot of times when these movies work i have a lot of fun with them sure and i still you know i'm enough of a dork that there are things about this even this movie where when i recognize something or i i can kind of lose myself in that stuff but i think ultimately and i just rewatched every single one of these movies before avengers right. and you can read my pieces about every single one at screen crush where i revisited every single one and really what i took away from a lot of those movies even more than oh the superpowers and and just um you know fan service and putting these moments and scenes and images that you love on screen is that these movies have really great characters and they're very well cast. They always find the best person for the job. The the, the real Marvel superpower in movies is is casting and, and and character. Is that you love spending time with the characters. And in a way, this seemed like the greatest Marvel movie because it has all the characters, but it was like a double-edged sword. Because there's so little time yeah. to do anything. You don't get the stuff you love, which is, yeah, sure, the action scenes – you know, there'll be fun moments with Iron Man doing cool stuff or Captain America throwing each other. But it's like what you really love is Steve Rogers, like trying to be a normal person out of time. Or sure. you love Tony Stark bantering with with Pepper. Or Thor introducing his friend Tree. Exactly. Yes. Like that's the stuff that you really go ultimately. That's the best stuff in a Marvel movie. That's what you remember. And this movie doesn't have it because it doesn't have time for it, even at like two hours and 40 minutes or whatever it is. And it feels that long, even to me. Yes. It's a long movie that feels long. Even at that length, there's just not enough time for half the characters in this movie. And so, you know, it's like everyone feels like a walk-on. Yeah. Everyone feels like they have a cameo. And, you know, cameos can be fun when there's one character that has, like, a little cameo. But when, like, Captain America feels like he has a cameo in an Avengers movie, something's wrong. And I'm sure he'll have a bigger part in the next one. Yeah. But I ultimately was largely frustrated by most of the movie until the end which i had to sort of give them props for sure i feel like you know having after having seen it the thing that i think was my biggest frustration is that i i feel like the movie should have committed more to the idea of thanos as a main character right and that like it's okay if all of the other characters are walk-ons or kind of accessories if it really kind of like made him and like his kind of story and his motivations a bit more central and solid as opposed to this thing that is kind of eventually described and like in flashbacks that, uh, you know, if it had started with him and kind of, I feel like that would have been really that would have been provocative. Really bold. That would have been really provocative. But like it, it, it's a movie that's real existing in service of future movies, a future movie and, uh, and just this large franchise in ways in which I don't think, for the most part, most of the Marvel movies had felt like for me. I mean, they all have baggage towards the, in terms of the franchise, but they all mostly stand alone. And yes. there's no way you could say this movie stands alone. No, no. In, in any way. No, it doesn't. It is, it is really is the culmination of 10 years of, of storylines and characters. I mean, maybe the way to do it, because I, I mean, logistically, they just, ne- I mean, they would never make that movie you're describing, although that would have been bold and cool. I mean, he is. The closest thing the closest to the main thing. character. Totally, you're totally yep. right. I totally agree. Is the way they could have done it, perhaps, is to make a Thanos movie that's not not about this, that where he is the main character, and we we that's about him deciding to do this. And I so we understand the backstory. Could have been this movie. I Maybe. think it could have been this movie. Maybe it could there have is been. a lot of like otherwise. There's a lot of like 
business to get done in this movie that doesn't really need to be there. You know, a lot of like, we have to do this. We have to go here and do this. Yeah. And I mean, that's both. I mean, that's like a traditional thing that happens in these mm-hmm. movies. But I feel like that could have been trimmed down and you could have gotten more Thanos. But right. whatever. Whatever. Wait, last question. Who was your favorite of the children of Thanos and why was it Ebony Maw? <laughs> Just wanted to say Ebony Ma. That's all. I, I like that Carrie Coon was one of them. Yeah. I hadn't recognized her until after the credits rolled. And I was like, Carrie Coon was in this movie. Yes, she was. I think she was Proxima Midnight, Allison. God, I like that they are like the the high school goth crowd <laughs> elevated. With, I liked that. I don't think they. Powers. I like that they didn't introduce any of those characters or their powers. Even after like 10 movies. Like we didn't know any of those characters were. I mean. I didn't even know. Did we ever I mean, see them? We never saw them in any of the movies before. I mean, yeah. I knew who they were because I'm a huge Dorcas. Of course you did. But like, no, they like they never introduced those characters, and they just sort of and and they're just hanging around Thanos, and he's like, "Go get me the Infinity Stones." Right, and you're like, "Horn Girl" and "Floating Magic <laughs> Big guy. guy." Yeah, and tall, yeah, tall dude, prune face, other guy. Yeah, there was one other one, and who knows? Yeah, yeah. All right, well, that's enough. Of, now that now that we've doomed that movie to yes. financial rec- uh, <laughs> wreckage and total obscurity. It'll never make any money after that review, I'm sure. <laughs> let's be mo- like, let's never make one of these again. Yeah, they're gonna uh, uh, total total about face. Let's uh, let's do behind the eight ball. Let's wrap things up on the show by uh, counting down some new releases on streaming. We'll give you some listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address svu at filmspottingsvu.com and we will also give you one film chosen blindly by number from my lists on Netflix. Allison. Uh, do you want to go first? You want me yeah, to go first? All right. First. All right. So let's have three new releases on streaming. New to Hulu is BPM, Beats Per Minute, uh, the 2017 French film that was really one of the most critically beloved films of last year, all about uh, the AIDS epidemic and activism in France in the 1990s. Uh, if this is one that passed you by, now is the time to, to check it out. It's on Hulu. New to Netflix as a Netflix original, is Psychokinesis. This is the second live-action film from director Yan Sang-ho, who made Train to Busan, the extremely enjoyable and dark zombies on a train and off a train movie uh, from 2016. Uh, Wikipedia claims this is the first South Korean superhero film. I don't know if that's true or not, and you could probably argue that depending on where you, <laughs> you consider and rank superhero films. But uh, it certainly sounds interesting to me. Uh, haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but that is on Netflix now. And finally, new to Amazon is the 1974 Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, Sydney Lumet, uh, and a ridiculous cast. Uh, Albert Finney as Hercule Poirot and, uh, the train, the passengers on the train include Lauren Bacall, Ingrid Bergman, Sean Connery, John Gielgud, Vanessa Redgrave, Jacqueline Bissett, Anthony Perkins, Michael York. I just kind of ridiculous array of huge names. Um, and so if you want to check that out, and particularly if uh, maybe the recent Murder on the Orient Express didn't do that for didn't do much for you, that is on Amazon now. How about two listener recommendations? Okay. First up, we have one from Daniel in Florida. He writes, after watching all 16 episodes of Babylon Berlin, much better than we did. Congratulations, Daniel. Uh, and being totally engrossed, by the way, episode 15 is a heart stopper. I went down the rabbit hole in search of more films featuring its star Volker Bruch. 
I'm recommending the 2009 Best Foreign Film nominee from Germany, The Bader Meinhof Complex. It's available for rent on Amazon Prime. Uh, this film is truly epic in its scope and detail in its exploration of Germany in the late 1960s and early 70s. Well, children of the Nazi generation are fighting a violent war against what they perceive as the new face of fascism, American imperialism supported by the German establishment, many of whom have a Nazi past. It's an intriguing companion to Babylon Berlin, the circle of radicalization, a seemingly never-ending conflict between the socialist workers, police and the politicians, an ever-present subject. It's told in a Verde style, recalling the films of Paul Greengrass or Michael Winterbottom. So that is a recommendation from Daniel in Florida. Thank you, Daniel. And then we have one from Eric in Florida, uh, who sent a bunch of recommendations for Filmstruck films. So this is one of them. It is Prospero's Books, 1991 film, uh, an avant-garde adaptation of Shakespeare's The Tempest. If that combination of words turns you off, stay far, far away. <laughs> if not, this movie is for you. Legendary stage actor John Gielgud, also the star of Order on the Orient Express, had attempted for decades to produce a film version of The Tempest. At the age of 86, he finally got it. And his performance as Prospero single-handedly justifies the film. The film is notable for its intricate set design, beautiful soundtrack, innovative narrative structure, and nudity. Oh my God, there is so much nudity. <laughs> Pretty much everyone except Prospero and the shipwreck people are naked the entire time. It's great. Thank you for that one, Eric. That was a good, that was a good recommendation. Was a I, good en- recommendation. I enjoyed that. All right. How about one film? <laughs> my list. You gave me number five. Number five is The Chalet. Um, Netflix adds a lot of European thriller series that it seems to think I want to watch. And I probably do. And you do. I probably do. Thank you. Um, But so far, what mostly happens is that they add them all to my my list and they slowly work their way down because I haven't had time. Uh, This one is a French thriller series. The description from Netflix... Friends gathered at a remote chalet in the French Alps for a summer getaway are caught in a deadly trap as a dark secret from the past comes to light. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, yeah, so I know nothing more about it than that, but Netflix told me. The algorithm commanded me, and so I obeyed and <laughs> yeah. added it. The algorithm commands you. Mindless. All right, Matt, are you ready? Yes. All right, give me three new releases. First up on Amazon Prime is Last Flag Flying, the latest film from Richard Linklater. It is a sort of sequel to the classic Hal Ashby film, The Last Detail. It's based on a book that was a direct sequel. Sequel? Sequel. About the same (laughs) characters many years later. And the film is based on that book, but some of the details, some of the characters have been changed. So it's more like something that's kind of a sequel, but... Not exactly. It has Brian Cranston, Lawrence Fishburne, Steve Carell playing old Vietnam War buddies who reunite many years later for the first time in decades to go on a road trip together. And uh, I wouldn't deny this is, you know, minor Linklater. And maybe that's kind of a scary description because, like, every Richard Linklater is, like, by design a minor Richard Linklater film. So what does that say about this one? But I did enjoy it. I don't think it's one of his best. But I, I did like sort of being the fourth wheel, the fourth member of this group kind of tagging along on this adventure and spending time with these men as they talked and reminisced and, uh, I don't know, ribbed each other and stuff. And, hey, if you've got Amazon Prime, to me, that's like, that's enough. It's less flag flying it's available now on amazon prime next up on hulu is the classic science fiction film one of the best ever uh tim burton's planet of the apes no i'm just kidding <laughs> the original planet of the apes uh based on the famous uh, pierre bull novel and a screenplay by rod serling 
Uh, Charlton Heston is the astronaut whose journey to the stars goes very badly. Winds up on a planet populated by sentient talking apes who rule over a population of enslaved humans. And uh, great film. And it is a great excuse to tell you that uh, uh, this is one of the films that may pop up as a subject on the uh, new television series, James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction, which I am featured in as an Mm. interview subject. I just wanted to throw this out there for people listening. You may want to tune in. The show airs every Monday at 10 10 o'clock on AMC. It's a six-part miniseries. The second episode would have aired, if you're listening to this pretty much when it comes out, the second episode just aired. I'm guessing you can find the other ones probably on AMC's website. I'm in like five of the six episodes. I've also written a bunch of essays for the companion book for the series, which has the same name, James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction. He's like the executive producer. He's in the series interviewing famous people. And then the book has like essays from people like me, other people. And then it also has like uh, interviews, like transcript transcribed interviews of Cameron talking to other filmmakers like Steven Spielberg, Ridley Scott, Christopher Nolan, Guillermo del Toro, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm, so, never heard of him. Yeah, well, he's he's, he's pretty good. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, what from what I've seen of the show, and I haven't seen all of it, but I've seen a couple of cuts of some of the episodes. It's a really cool show. It's got a lot of um, filmmakers and experts in it. Uh, a lot of good clips. Will it gives you a great overview of all these different topics. It's it's really cool. I'm, uh, I think it's worth checking out if you've got AMC. And uh, the book, I've got two different essays in that book, too, if you're interested in that. I don't think the book is out until the middle of May, but I'm sure you could pre-order it on Amazon or wherever else. So uh, that's called James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction on AMC. But uh, the movie I was recommending as a roundabout way of talking about that was Planet of the Apes, which is a great movie, one of my favorites on Hulu. And finally this week, the thing I'm most looking forward to watching, haven't had time yet, is Manhunt on Netflix. This is the first John Woo film that's really a John Woo film in a very long time. So you've got guys shooting at each other with two pistols and good guys and bad guys, and and it's hard to tell who is who. I think there are doves, of course, flying in the air. There's slow motion. motion, Maybe a little slow motion, a big action plot, and it went straight to Netflix. What a world. Uh, Anyway, John Woo back Back in, in Asia, making an action thriller, it is my kind of party. I'm really excited to watch Manhunt on Netflix. All right. Give me two listener recommendations. Our first is from Crystal in Philadelphia. Crystal writes, I just finished watching That Man, Peter Berlin. This is a breezy and interesting 2006 documentary of porn star and amazing photographer Peter Berlin. His image has influenced gay male culture since his emergence in the late 1970s. Commentators include novelist Armistead Maupin and John Waters. This NSFW, not safe for work film, with only an hour and 25 minute runtime is well worth a look, though I guess not at work. It's available streaming on Amazon Prime. That is That Man, Peter Berlin. And that was a recommendation from Crystal in Philadelphia. Thank you, Crystal. And next up, Patrick from Japan, originally from Germany. Patrick writes, I'm writing with a recommendation that I've been meaning to send for a long time. Jason and Brandon Trost's 2011 comedy film, The FP, set in a vaguely dystopian version of the eponymous Fraser Park, California. Rival gangs fighting for control over the town by challenging each other. In the most deadly discipline imaginable, the rhythm-based video game Beat Beat Revolution. 
after his brother dies during a high stakes dance battle. Our hero, Jatro, must undergo rigorous training in his quest for revenge and for control of the city's booze trade. Because, to paraphrase the movie, if there is no booze, there are no bums. And without bums, there's nobody to feed the ducks. And what is a town without ducks? It's nothing. As you could tell, this film is built on a very silly premise, but nonetheless has managed to become one of the most rewatched and quoted movies in my circle of friends. In the U.S., the film should be available to stream for free on Tubi or for rent. A crowdfunded sequel is currently in post-production. Oh, I didn't know that part. Wow. Okay, more FP is coming. All right. So that was a recommendation for the FP from Patrick from Japan, originally from Germany. Thank you, Patrick. Okay. Give me one from your my list. You gave me number 11, and number 11 on my my, my list is The Twilight Zone, the original TV show. It might have been a my list pick previously. I don't know. I've got it on there. I've had it on there for a while. Rod Serling getting some more love on the show. I love the Twilight Zone, so I have it on my my list so that every once in a while when I'm like, what do I want to watch? I don't know. And I open it up. I'm like, I'm going to watch an old Twilight Zone. Maybe tonight I will watch the one that Allison it's loves. It's a good life. It's a good life. Ah, it's my favorite. With um, the little boy who yeah. has to be coddled. Eh, just <laughs> It probably will really make me laugh now way more than it used to because it in no way bears any resemblance to my life. So yeah, the classic... The classic series of The Twilight Zone on uh, on Netflix. That was my my list pick. Uh, let's run through our three options for our next listener's choice. We've talked about two of them already. It's a very good batch. Our first option is Manhunt on Netflix, the new John Woo film. Um, we could definitely talk uh, uh, about John Woo, or we could also great. also just talk more generally, maybe about Hong Kong action films. That is a really rich topic with a lot of amazing movies, and a lot of them are streaming. A lot of them are streaming, and not all of them are as famous. There's some, you know, like there's a lot of great ones that John Woo didn't direct that maybe you haven't seen. Um, so yeah, there's definitely some we could talk about there. That couple of good options right there. So that's your listener's choice option number one: Manhunt, the new John Woo film. On Netflix. I think we've actually talked about all three of these already. Your oh. second one is uh, one that I have mentioned. It's Psychokinesis, which is streaming on Netflix. Uh, I was a big fan of Train, uh, Train to Busan. Were you, Matt? Have you seen it? I've never seen it. Oh, shame, shame. Well, uh, this may be the time, but also we it could may do. Be the time. Yes. Uh, by the way, here is the, the description. Uh, Seo Kun, a bank security guard, gains superpowers one day after drinking water, as you do, from a mountain spring affected by a meteor. Oh. He then sets out to protect his estranged daughter, Rumi, and her neighborhood from a construction company controlled by the mafia using his newly arrived superpower. Um, I don't know. I think we've we've talked about different variations on superhero movies before. Maybe this is the time we talk about just some South, uh, South Korean movies. There was just like a whole bunch of... Uh, Recent interesting ones and the kind of Korean wave of mm -hmm. especially like dark thrillers, uh, which are my particular favorites of uh, some of the ones I've gotten to see. These giant blockbusters that just go to much darker places than an American blockbuster would ever dare. Mm -hmm. uh, but Psychokinesis, that's your second pick or option. It is on Netflix. All right. Our third option. Allison mentioned it already. It is BPM, which is available on Hulu. Film set uh, in France in the 1990s, all about uh, a group of characters. It's about homosexuality, the AIDS epidemic, uh, this experience of growing up in the ACT UP organization movement, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah, I mean, what could we talk about with this one, perhaps? Maybe, I don't know. There's 
I what mean, do you think? I don't know if I'm going to do uh, a whole AIDS epi- AIDS, epidemic AIDS, episode. Uh, it'd be a very be a little heavy. Yeah, a little heavy, but uh, possible. Maybe we could do one about activism. That's you know? a good idea. Yeah, because there, I think there's like a, there are all kinds of movies that deal with uh, different types of political right. activism. Doesn't have to be one specific type; just right. activism in general, or yeah. activists in general. I like that's that a idea. Topic, so very good we'll idea. Yeah. Okay, so that's option number three, BPM, and that is available for streaming on Hulu. All right, now it's all up to you. Tell us which of these streaming options we should review on the next episode by voting in the poll that's on the bottom of the page over at filmspottingsvu.com. Or you can also check out our social media. Uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter at FilmSpottingSVU, and we will post links to the poll there. Uh, you've got until Monday, May 14th at noon to vote. Uh, that's when we announce the winner. I'll give you about a week if you want to watch it in advance before our next episode comes out on Tuesday, May 22nd. In addition to being able to vote at FilmSpottingSVU.com, that is also where you can find our episode archive, complete with links to where you can stream or rent all the titles we mention on the show. The FilmSpotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Find more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.Bandcamp.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review you've picked. Until then, you can follow us on Twitter. What a wonderful website it is. Always so much fun. Never anything bad. And uh, we are there at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you should definitely follow the show at Filmspotting SVU, where we drop links throughout the day to things that are new to streaming that you might want to know about. And nothing else that's awful. Like the rest of Twitter. <laughs> for for Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening.